Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more info at DesertCityChurch.com. Before we get started, I had one more announcement that I forgot. Um, There is a golf, a charity golf tournament coming up the first Friday in March called the Old School Open. And this golf tournament is put on by my brother's organization, one of our local mission partners called Teach One to Lead One. Uh, And the cool thing about this open um, is that you, it's the old school open, so you have to use wooden uh, clubs. You can use irons, but you can't use your driver. So you have to you have to use uh, like clubs from like pre 1980. I don't know if that's when they started coming out the titanium drivers. But if you're interested in, in uh, uh, golfing for a good cause, you can talk to Richard. I think that's his. Uh, yeah, I've got the little graphic going up. But uh, we have a lot of golfers in the church. I know we have a lot of people that are hacks like me too. So, uh, but that's coming up. Uh, if you want to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, we're going to be we're going to start in Mark today. Uh, a couple of years back, uh, there was a, a comedian named Sebastian Maniscalco uh, who did a, a stand-up routine um, that really caught my attention, really resonated with me. And as he goes into this routine, he talks about how he's had this long day, and he gets home, and he's with his family, and the doorbell rings. And he thinks, that's weird. The doorbell just rang. Are we expecting anyone? And it set off this uh, rant from him about how much culture's changed in the last 20 years when it comes to the doorbell ringing in the evening. And he talks about like 20 years ago, you know, 20 years ago, you're sitting around watching TV on a Thursday night and the doorbell rings. And that's a happy time for the family. It's called company. Everyone's like, someone's here, right? And so everyone would pop up from the couch run to the door, you talk about the kids would be in their socks, they'd come up and they'd like slide up to the door. You don't even peek out the window, you just open it. And you're like, company, we have company. And, and how you talk about how excited they would all be that, come on in, yeah, it's so good. To, and it'd be some, some family friend would be like, I was in the neighborhood, I just wanted to stop in and see how the kids were doing. And oh sure, come on in. And the mom would always have like special cake prepared just in case someone stopped by that no one else was allowed to touch because it was the company's cake. And, and it would just be this, this joyful moment that, 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 that their, their friends would come in and, and uh, the whole evening would stop. And he said back then no one had cell phones, so the, you know, the phone on the wall would ring and dad would be like, you can't answer it, don't answer it. We got company, right? We, we got, they have our full attention right now. And hours would pass visiting with the company, and then company, whoever it was, would, would leave. And as they would leave, you would say, come back over whenever you want. Our door is open. Mi casa es su casa. And then he says, now, what happens when the doorbell rings? It's late at night. <laughs> you look around the, the room, and you quiet. <laughs> Close the windows. <laughs> and then they would ask, did you invite anyone over? Are we expecting someone? Who, who would come over? He says, like, now if someone comes over, it just disrupts, it disrupts the whole evening. It's inconvenient. 
Like we're like, what, why would someone come over without calling or planning first? And he talks about even when you go to someone else's house, it's like, it's like a hostage situation. <laughs> like you're in the driveway and you're like, hey, it's me. I got three kids. I'm coming up. I'm going to knock three times. You know it's me. Let me in. And he talks about how much our culture has changed and how we interact with our neighbors, how we interact with company. We live very private lives now. And I know I'm, I'm exactly the same way. If it's not planned out in advance, it's, it completely throws me off. What is that? What has happened in our culture? There's a survey that was put out by the City Observatory um, that found that about tw only 20% of Americans spend regular time with people living next to them, their neighbors. Only 20% of people do that now. 33% uh, people, of people uh, never interact with their neighbors, just don't even know them. And a separate survey in 2010 by the uh, Pew Research Center found that 43% of Americans uh, know most of all their neighbors, so under, the, under half of people, but so nearly one-third uh, don't know one neighbor by name. Mark Dunkelman in The Vanishing Neighbor explores the breakdown of authentic community within American neighborhoods over the last 40 years. When we think about kind of the neighborhoods that we grew up in, how we hang out in the street with all of our friends, and how isolated we feel now. And I wonder, how well do you know your neighbors? Maybe it's a neighborhood that's super uh, community-oriented, maybe it's like mine and it's, it's not. And I don't know when it happened in our culture, um, when ringing the doorbell went from being something that was a really happy time to something that now creates anxiety. But when we look at some of the, the macro trends in our country, there's this breakdown of authentic community within our neighbor, neighborhood. Uh, we're, we're very isolated and individual, individualistic. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but there are a lot of unintended consequences of us not living, uh, knowing our neighbors well. So for the next month, I want to talk about this idea of neighboring. We're calling this series The Art of Neighboring. What does it mean to, to know those who live around us, to be involved in their life, uh, to know what's going on, to know their names, to know their stories? It's almost this lost art in our culture, neighboring. And I think it's important because of what Jesus says about our neighbors. So I want to go to Mark chapter 12. And uh, we'll start there. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31. Jesus is having a conversation. And verse 28 says, One of the, the teachers of the law, one of the teachers of the law came, and he heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So we know this is, this is a question, but it's also a loaded question. This is an expert in the law who's asking this of Jesus. He's trying to figure out what side Jesus is going to take on this debate. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. It's a pretty powerful statement when Jesus says there's no commandment greater than these. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. We find, we think of the word commandments, we think Ten Commandments, right? Most of us will go to that picture, we'll envision uh, at Mount Sinai, Charlton Heston coming down with these tablets, getting ready to break them. We think of the Ten Commandments. But there's also many other commandments that are found in the Old Testament, over 600 of them, actually. And as uh, the, the, uh, the teacher of the law would, would know the Torah, the five books of the law of the Old Testament, uh, they, would, they would consider these commandments from God. They would say some commandments are more important than others. Some are, they would call them weights. Some have more weight than others. And depending on uh, kind of your understanding of how God works in the world, you might put more of an emphasis on some than others. And it's in this conversation that Jesus speaks. He talks about the greatest commandment. He's actually giving commentary on, uh, giving commentary on Deuteronomy 6.5. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, to Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Jesus says this. This is the most important thing. Of all these commandments, they could be summed up in this way. We're created for a love relationship with God. To love God with all of our heart, with everything. When you get that one right, you'll find that you're living life as God has created you to live. I love this thought from New International Commentary. It says, to love God in a way defined by the great commandment is to seek God for his own sake, to have pleasure in him, and to strive impulsively after him. To seek God for his own sake, to have pleasure in him, and to strive impulsively after him. We're commanded, love God with everything that we have. In the second commandment, Jesus gives commentary on this Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. What Jesus is doing here is he's, he's making this connection. For him, there's this profound connection between loving God and loving people. A very profound connection. In fact, he would say that this love of the neighbor flows out of radical love for God. The first commandment is to love God. The second one, to love our neighbors. As we consider the art of neighboring, everything is driven by this idea of do we love our neighbors? Do we love our neighbors? This greatest commandment account is given in the Gospel of Mark. And it's interesting if you look at the synoptic Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are very similar, there's three accounts of the same passage. Today I want to also dive into the passage that's found in the Gospel of Luke. And something interesting happens in Luke, because the same kind of conversation starts, Jesus and an expert of the law. And uh, the expert of the law adds a question. I'll start in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So in this story, in this account, this expert in the law actually gives the same answer that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark. Maybe he was listening in on an earlier conversation. I don't know. Jesus says, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the conversation isn't over. Then he, 
the expert in the law says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He doesn't just stop at loving your neighbor. He wants to know who is that person. Let's complicate things, right? Who is my neighbor? Again, probing to see what Jesus would say. And here's how Jesus answers this question of who is my neighbor? He goes into this story. Verse 30, he says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. When I return, I will reimburse you for your extra expense, any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. A story that, probably one of the more popular stories in scripture, very familiar. We think of it as the Good Samaritan. I like to call it the Compassionate Samaritan. I'm sure you've heard this story before. But as Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? This is his response. He doesn't identify a person. He doesn't even identify a location. He tells this story about a man that gets robbed and mugged. The story has a couple characters in it. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And it's interesting to think of the context of this. As we think of the context of it, it adds color to this story. The story starts off with a man traveling between Jerusalem and Jericho. Jerusalem, the holy city where the temple is, sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level. And then if you travel down to this valley to Jericho, it's about 800 feet below sea level. It's a, it's a very steep and dangerous road, uh, an easy and vulnerable place for someone to get robbed. And on this path is this man who ends up getting mugged. Mugged to the point where he's almost dead. And then three people show up and pass by this man. The first a priest, the second a Levite. And what's interesting about that is the priest is probably on his way to do duty, his duty in the temple. Oftentimes these priests would serve in the temple for a couple weeks out of the year and then head home. They, not all of them would live in Jerusalem, they would live in these surrounding villages. So the priest is on his way or he's heading home from his time serving in the temple. And it's probably true of the Levite as well. 
they have a duty to fulfill. And what's interesting is they come across this man who's been beaten. It's probably possible that the man's bleeding. It's possible that the man's dead. The priest and the Levite pass over him. Now, we always think that that's their apathy, right? That's just apathy. They're just, they're not interested in helping this man. But if you understand the priest and the Levite, they have a very important role that they're either fulfilling or have just fulfilled. And in the Torah, in their law, there's very specific regulations. They're supposed to be ceremonially clean and available to serve in the temple. And the things that would make them unclean, there's a long list of things. But one of them is dealing with a person that has lost some sort of, sort of bodily fluid, discharge. And this man's been beaten and he's bleeding. For them to stop and to help the person, they would become unclean. They'd have to go through this great ceremony to become clean again. And so as they approach this man, they're actually left with this decision. Ethically, what do they do? Do they follow God's word and stay ceremonial clean so that they can serve in the temple or head home to their family? Or do they help this man, which would require um, a ceremony of cleansing, which could take quite a lot of time? The other thing that they're uh, required to do by their law is if you find someone that's dead, you're supposed to bury that person. That, again, would take quite a bit of time. So oftentimes as we read the story of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite kind of get this bad reputation. as They're just apathetic. The truth is, I think they probably wrestled with what they're supposed to do. What's right? What's wrong? If I do this, I'm going to become unclean. It's situational ethics for them. And they both decide to pass on by. And what's interesting is Jesus actually doesn't condemn their action. He doesn't say that they're wrong for passing on by. But when he talks about the side of the greatest commandment of being loving God and loving our neighbor, he says this next person does it the most. And it's the Samaritan. It's interesting the context around Samaritans as well. When we think of Samaritans, they kind of have a good reputation in our culture because it's usually considered someone who does good, right? A, a do-gooder in our, in our culture. Someone that stops on the side of the road to help change tires. Samaritans have a good reputation. But in the time of Jesus, the Jewish people did not like Samaritans. They would consider them almost like these half-bred humans, actually. They wouldn't go near them. They despised each other. Samar the, the place where these people are from is just north of where the Jewish people are from. And if they were traveling, they would go out of their way to not go through their country. There was great disdain for each other. So the fact that the Samaritan is the one that stops would have been very radical to hear this story. The Samaritan and the Jewish person don't like each other very much. And I think when it comes to neighboring, when it comes to loving our neighbors, those around us, there's a few things to learn from this story. The first is that we can't allow ritual to replace relationships. When it comes to our neighbors, when it comes to those that we do community with, we cannot allow ritual to replace relationship. The priest on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho has something to do. In fact, he's probably doing what, exactly what he's supposed to be doing according to the Torah. He passes on by. Didn't have time to stop. 
the tendency to be active doing things for God. And we're so focused on that that we become unavailable to the brokenness around us. We can't allow going through the motions of Christianity to keep us from being in relationship with those around us. The second thing, second thing that we learned is don't let perfection detour presence. Don't let our need to be perfect detour being present in people's lives. Issues of uncleanliness for the priest, helping this beaten man are found in Leviticus 21. And yet he misses the chance to save this man's life. Worried about becoming unclean. I've gotten to know uh, neighbors on both sides of our house fairly well. And uh, we have one neighbor um, on uh, the right side of our house. Uh, it's a, a single mom. She just actually remarried. Uh, she has a son. He's uh, college age. And we've gotten to know them a little bit. Moved here from Texas. And a lot of times the mom will travel. And so this uh, college-age son is by his house, uh, by, by himself at the house. And he likes to party. Um, we live in this little suburban, quiet neighborhood. And then all of a sudden, every, time, every weekend, a bunch of cars will show up. Music will be really loud. There'll be some pretty interesting characters that come over. And uh, Marcy and I have four children. Um, and it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Sometimes I'll go over and, and visit with them, and I, I feel like I'm in like a Will Ferrell movie with <laughs> Zac Efron or something. I don't know. Um, and I've gotten to know him a little bit, and uh, I feel like every time that I, I do get to know him, he or his friends find out what I do as a pastor, and it's like that conversation is usually over. <laughs> they're probably afraid they're going to end up in like a sermon illustration or something. I don't know. Um, and uh, sometimes I, they, they get really loud, and I'm trying to figure out how to be a good neighbor to this uh, this young man. Um, and uh, a couple months ago, his mom got married and went off on like a two-week honeymoon with her, her new husband. And it was like a two-week-long party. Wow. And uh, Phil Compton, Phil and Cassie live on our street. And uh, Phil came over one night and someone had vandalized our, our neighborhood. We weren't sure who had done it. We were just kind of assuming it was uh, these, these kids. And uh, so we went over and talked to them and had a conversation. They're super nice. And uh, not sure if it was them or not. Um, but it's been interesting, as I approach this relationship with him, uh, one thing that I've realized, and I think Phil would probably attest to this, is that my mindset with him is a mindset of suspicion. Right? We assume the worst. I look at his lifestyle, I look at how he dresses, Look at the, some of the decisions that he makes. And I'm just a su suspicious person. Um, there's things that I'm concerned about, right? Father of four kids. And I always go to like worst case scenario with people. And as I've gotten to know this young man, gotten to know his name, gotten to know his story, it's always interesting when you hear why a person acts the way they do. As I've gotten to know him, found that, you know, it comes from this broken home, comes from West Texas. Dad's not a good guy, he's not around. Um, moved around a lot. Um, kind of dropped out of high school, started working on oil rigs uh, outside of Odessa. It's a tough life. This young man's trying to 
find himself become a man. And when we stop and we hear people's stories, we start to understand where they're coming from. It allows us to get involved in their life in a way uh, that's deeper than our assumptions about them. And I think of my neighboring with this young man, how much I would put ritual over relationship or I'd put perfection over presence, being involved in his life. It's the same thing. Jesus is accused of uh, being a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus hangs out with people of uh, questionable reputations. And when he's asked about it, he says, it's the sick that need a doctor. He's come to bring healing. And when it comes to neighboring, we don't put the ritual of Christianity above our relationship with those who need to know about the love of Christ. We have to be willing to go out of our comfort zone to connect with our neighbors. Third thing, don't let, uh, don't let unfamiliarity hinder action. Don't let unfamiliarity hinder action. One of the things that this Samaritan does doesn't know anything about this man. The man's been beaten to death, right up to the point of death. He's not sure this man, he probably assumes that he's, he's Jewish, probably assumes that he's an enemy, someone that they don't like. Doesn't know his name or his story, but it doesn't hinder his action. He sees brokenness and he responds to it. He sees someone who's hurting and he's moved to act. I think one of the reasons that we don't get to know our neighbors is it's easy to do community on our own terms. It's uncomfortable to go out of our comfort zone and to meet people who are different than us, who look different than us, who believe different than us. If we want a neighbor well, we have to be willing to move to action, even when it's uncomfortable and unfamiliar. We're willing to get to know people's names, know their stories. The Samaritan stops. As I was getting ready for, uh, for this series, um, I'm in a class right now in seminary called Evangelism and Contemporary Culture. It sounds very academic, right? Um, talking about what does it mean to, to share our faith in this culture that we live in today. And I came across this man named William Carey, who used to be a shoemaker in England in the late 18th century. Uh, he also became the father of modern missions. He's known as the father of modern missions. And he left this shoemaking company, company, shoemaking shop. I don't know what it was back in the 18th century. Um, and got involved in global missions. And uh, ended up going throughout the world, going to China, going to India. And it was a time of colonialization, a time of Europe kind of spreading its wings, going, uh, exploring this new world, very much driven by commerce, right? So they're, they're finding new resources to, to harvest, new ways to trade with different parts of the world. And uh, the whole world is new. And the church is trying to figure out how do we react to this, to these, to these new peoples and cultures and languages that we uh, didn't even know existed. And there was this heart to go and to, to share God's love with them, to tell them about Jesus. But it creates all sorts of issues. 
And so there was this growing number of, of objections for the church in England. And this man, William Carey, had this heart for uh, the people of the world. And he, he would hear these objections, and he, he ends up writing this response to the objections. And he entitles it this, An Inquiry into the Obligation of Christians to Use Means for the Conversion of the Heathens. Very remarkable title, right? Uh, remember, this is like late 18th century. An inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of heathens. He identifies these objections for foreign missions that people are kind of pushing back. They say, the first is that the distance, is, the distance from us is too far. We shouldn't go. It's just, it's just way too far. It requires way too much time. The second was the inconvenience of the uncivilized and barbarous way of living of these people. It's just so inconvenient to go and to live in such an uncivilized culture. The danger of violence and death, which I think that's probably a pretty legitimate objection. You know, you might lose your life if you go. The difficulties, procuring the necessaries of life. Um, it's like we, you know, there, if you've ever traveled, you, you're really grateful for air conditioning, for, for hot water, just some of the basic uh, basic things that we take for granted. And then five was the language barrier. Getting to know a new language is extremely difficult. William Carey consi considers these objections for foreign missions. And he answers these objections by bringing up this very important point. He talks about how all these objections that the church is finding excuses not to go out to all the world. These same objections aren't being applied to the commerce that's taking place. These new companies, the East Indian Trading Company, the Dutch Trading they're, they're all going out trying to make a profit. And they consider these objections, and it doesn't stop them from doing business. And he has this unbelievable saying as he considers what these companies are doing. He talks about these objections and the need to go to people to share Jesus. And he says, it only requires that we should have as much love to the souls of our fellow creatures and fellow sinners as they have for the prophets arising from a few otter skins. And all these difficulties would be easily surmounted. It only requires that we should have as much love in our souls for these fellow creatures and sinners as they have for the prophets arising from these otter skins. You hear that? It's like a 18th century mic drop, right? These objections that we make for not loving the world around us. And here we have these people driven by commerce that are saying, it doesn't stop us. It doesn't stop us from making a profit. William Carey is saying, how much more should the church have an urgency of action in this world? How much more should the church be involved with loving our neighbors? Now, this is the greatest commandment to love God and to love our neighbors. What could stop us? We have a homework assignment this week. So we start this Art of Neighboring series. The assignment this week for you is very simple. It's to learn your neighbors' names. To learn their names. We'll start doing these practical steps this month, but it starts with this learning our neighbors' names. What you'll find is that there's a word each week, and uh, it spells out the word light. 
because we're pastors and we love acronyms. But this week it's learn. Let's learn our neighbors' names. Let's start there. Do we know the people who live around us on our street? We don't have to go all the way across the world, which we will at some point as a church. But let's start with those around us, knowing our neighbors' names. Uh, one of the things that we're, we have uh, for you this week is we have a magnet. And uh, the magnet has, uh, looks like you could play tic-tac-toe on it, but it has uh, these squares. The middle square is your house. And every square represents a house that's around you on your street. Our hope is that you would take a magnet and that you'd start to fill out the squares, knowing your neighbors who lives around you, knowing those who are on your street. So as we start to come to a close, as we go towards communion, those magnets will be available. We'd love for you to take it. This week, when it comes to loving our neighbors, let's learn their names. Jesus says this in John chapter 13, and I'll close with this. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Loving others is difficult. It requires us getting dirty. It requires us doing things that are inconvenient our schedule. But Jesus says this is the witness. When you love those around you, people will know who God is. It reveals to the world the heart of God. So Tim's going to come back up. The band's going to close us with a song. We close each week with a time of communion. Communion is a sacred act of remembrance. We remember the love that God has for the world. As we move to communion, we, we practice open communion here. So we say if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited to the table. If you don't know what it means to follow Jesus, this is the story that we're inviting you into. It's a story of love for the world. We'd love to talk with you about that. As we move to the table today, we're reminded of this God who loved the world so much that he became human. He came down to earth and he walked among us. He took on flesh and blood. This communion represents the flesh and blood. The bread is the body of Christ. That body was broken open on the cross. The juice is the blood of Christ, symbolic of the blood that was shed on the cross. We believe that as Christ came, walked among us, died for us on the cross, broke his body open, poured his blood out, we find healing in all the ways that we've messed it up. Today we do this in remembrance of what he did for us, but also we do it as a proclamation that as the church, we are the body of Christ now. That God moves in us and that we move in this world as a force of love for our neighbors. When you feel ready today, you can grab, uh, come up and, and partake in communion. And then as you leave, there's magnets in the back. We invite you to grab one on the way out. It's in the back suitcase. So let me pray for our time. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for this great city that we live in. These neighborhoods. How they're organized, how they're for the most part safe. 
And yet we know that there's people who are hurting, people who are broken, people who are very different than us, living right here. Lord, as we consider this command from you, this greatest of the commandments, to love you with everything that we have, then to love our neighbors as ourselves. We ask that you would give us the courage and the strength to do so. Lord, that you would open up our eyes to those around us, that we'd be sensitive to what's going on, that we'd be available, that we would be good neighbors. We know this kingdom that we're a part of, Lord, that is eternal. You talk about how it starts like a mustard seed. It starts small. This week, remind us of that. And the little decisions we make and the small conversations that we have with those around us. Lord, we ask your blessing on your people. In your son's name we pray. Amen.